She Explorers is brought to you by Oru Kayak. They design folding kayaks that can go virtually anywhere, thanks to their lightweight and folding design. Later in the episode, we'll talk again to Whitney Neighbor, a Seattle native, about her favorite thing about the Oru. I'm Gail Straub, and you're listening to She Explorers. Before we get started, I want to let you know to keep listening at the end of the episode. There's a preview for a new podcast we're producing called Women on the Road. It's an extension of the interview series we've had since the beginning of She Explores. With the help of host Laura Hughes, we'll dive deeper into what it's like to live on the road. Laura's not quite an expert, but she set off this spring in a Ford Transit van, so she has a lot of insight into getting started, and she's really curious about diving into the stories of others. Okay. Almost she explores. I know my body so well, and I know how this disease has manifested itself in my mind and my body. More than anything, this disease has taught me to be in tune with myself and listen to my needs. This is Chloe O'Neill. She's 25 years old, lives in Bend, Oregon. And she's had Lyme disease for most of her young life. Lyme is an infectious disease transmitted by ticks, and it's all too common in the outdoor community. Chronic Lyme symptoms include fatigue, cognitive impairment, joint pain, poor sleep, mood disorders, neuropathy, migraines, muscle pain. They're hard to pin down. For Chloe, the vague, intermittent, but often debilitating symptoms of the disease have impacted her life view in both negative and remarkably positive ways. For Chloe, the definition of strength is always shifting. Sometimes it's going for a hike or falling off a bouldering wall. Sometimes it's listening to her body and going on a gentle walk. Sometimes it's staying on the couch with a cup of tea. More often than not, it's building community through her website, morethanlime.org. Maybe it's because of the lime, or maybe it's just due to her character, but Chloe is growing to be more and more at ease with gray areas. And with that, she's gaining confidence and a deep well of empathy for people with and without infectious diseases. I recently went to San Francisco for treatment I contracted Lyme disease on the coast of California in a little town called Mendocino, and that's where my mom grew up and my grandparents lived, and I made a point to visit there on my way back from treatment. When I was going through there, it just was like, it was probably one of the most powerful experiences of my life because I made it a solo trip, so I just kind of slept in my car and drove up the coast. I was thinking about myself all those years ago, back in 2001, when I started feeling those things that were then Lyme, but I didn't know at the time. And and you were eight. Yeah. We weren't sure exactly when I contracted it, but I visited there once or twice a year. And so it could have been a year before that or a couple of years or because you never know when it's going to show up. It was Christmas of 2001, right before 2002, when I I had this migraine and 
I had never experienced something like that before. And it was Christmas and I wanted to be with everyone. And we'd always go to the beach and I just couldn't, I couldn't leave the room. And it was, I had to turn all the lights off and it got so bad that I, I don't remember getting from there back home to Seattle, but I do remember my mom bringing me to the hospital on new year's Eve. At that point I was, I was saying things like for that age, it was quite strange. I'm sure for my mom, she didn't hesitate to take me, but I was saying things like I wanted to die. And I, I just was in so much pain that I, I almost wasn't myself. And it was like this alternate reality and things were just not how they should be. And I didn't know how to deal with them because it was such a foreign feeling to me. And then I was then diagnosed with meningitis and that's kind of when things started happening because we now know that that was, that was Lyme. But at the time it was the severe neck pressure. I was in the hospital for a while, but then I went home. Symptoms continued. Like I I was in fourth grade at the time. And I remember going into class and telling my teacher really innocently, like it was something that might've been normal. I couldn't see the words on the page. That's when my mom realized, because she took a lot of this into her own hands at the time, just because I was, I didn't know how to really approach it. And I didn't know if some of it was normal because you're still figuring out who you are. Eight years old. It is impossible to know who you are then or to be your own advocate for your health. It's no surprise that much of Chloe's story is wrapped in uncertainty. Then I had an MRI and it showed white blotches in your brain, which showed bacterial activity. And then I was diagnosed with Lyme because that that was what got the test. From there, I was receiving treatment daily and then things felt relatively normal for a while. And I was able to go back to activities and reading and having a little bit more energy. So when when you were first diagnosed, like when you were in fourth grade, was it communicated to you what it would be like or was the feeling that you would have treatments and you would be cured? Like what was the understanding then? At that time, there weren't that many documented cases of Lyme on the West Coast. So it was all very unorganized and clearly wasn't taken seriously. Like we didn't have a Lyme specialist at the time and it was really hard to go through my primary care. Everyone we approached would say, well, you know, Lyme doesn't exist. It was never very clear. People didn't want to give us definitive answers. And so I would go into places and it would be like, well, you know, you look fine and things aren't so bad. So keep doing what you're doing. And but they wouldn't keep me on treatment for very long at all. But it was quite, quite a strange experience. And I'm sure for my mom, even more so. Yeah, yeah. She must have felt really frustrated. Yeah, she definitely was. And it's it's quite something now to, I am so appreciative of everything she's done more and more, like every single day that I have to deal with insurance or talking with new doctors or whatever it is. I am reminded of that time that my mom did all of that for me and how scary that must have been when I wasn't getting better and how frustrating that must be for her and my family now 
that those treatments didn't work, and I still have it. As Chloe aged, her understanding was that she was recovered from Lyme, but something still didn't feel quite right. Chloe was diagnosed with dyslexia, but it was more than that. But throughout the rest of middle school and high school, I never really felt like myself and strong and confident. And I was just like every moment was riddled with anxiety and and panic. And like there was just something that I was missing and I I couldn't grab hold of anything. And it was just I thought of that as just these kind of, you know, you're figuring things out at that stage and doesn't need to come to you all at once. And I just shoved it under the carpet and thought of it as no big deal until I think started worsening from there around when I was 19, 20. Do you ever wonder, or it's probably impossible to know, what of the anxiety and those feelings when you were in middle school and high school, like how much of that was being a teenager and how much of it was the Lyme or how much of it was the almost traumatizing experience of having the Lyme at a young age? I've been thinking about that a lot recently because in high school, I just thought of it as these different learning disabilities that I had and working around them and anxiety. And it wasn't until the past couple months that I've, I've been trying to work through forgiving myself for not doing well in school and then dropping out of college and not, not going that direction, which was surprising that it took me this long to forgive myself. But I just, it was one of those things that you just hold on to without even realizing it. I thought that maybe I would have been better off now if I had just pushed through and did it. But looking back, it made me realize I didn't think of myself as having Lyme in high school. I, I said I had it. And so it was this, this weird in-between time when as soon as I graduated and started doing things on my own and felt the pressure of like the real world really hitting, that's when the anxiety went to panic, went to depression, went to seizures, and then it was just spiraled downhill very quickly as soon as I let myself feel everything. Chloe spent nine months living in Scotland with family and traveling in Europe after her high school graduation. This might be a hard transition for any young adult. It was especially hard for Chloe as her mostly dormant Lyme symptoms became amplified when she started community college in Seattle. I was traveling and... I was more independent and I had this boost of confidence and realization that that was something that I really liked to do. And I felt really inspired by that. And then I came home and all of a sudden that was reversed and it was like, okay, no, you should go to school and get a job in this field. And it kind of hit like a wall and I wasn't really prepared for it. I had a couple semesters of feeling okay. And I actually took an English class. I did a bunch of travel writing when I was gone and, and a boost of confidence from that, which pushed me to take that class. But then I, I woke up one morning and I had a tremor in my right hand and then it 
towards the end of the day, it went to my left hand and then it stayed. It got kind of this twitch in my upper body. I had a really hard time writing. It was a strange experience because I, I had a boost of confidence that wanted to push me through school, but I was this physical disability that kind of jolted me again into thinking that I couldn't do it. At some point we were discussing with my teachers, the voice activated system for completing my assignments. It just became too much. And at that time too, I was having a lot more anxiety and I wasn't taking care of myself and that I wasn't eating the right things and wasn't in a healthy relationship and was working a job that didn't make me happy at all and all these different things, the anxiety and then panic attacks. And then I would have moments of just kind of blacking out during all that. I, I decided to take a break from school is what I told myself at the time and just work. Things didn't really get better. I was able to, to get rid of the tremors for a while through low-dose antibiotics. So when you went to the hospital, they, they recognized it as, as Lyme symptoms? One of the hardest parts, I think, of trying to get this re-diagnosis of what was going on is like I knew and my family knew we, it was Lyme. It just made sense. But to everyone else, they were trying to diagnose me with something else. So it was either MS or Parkinson's or anything besides Lyme. Lyme, it was like we would bring it up and it wasn't even an option for them. Like, no way she can't have that. We were trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together and that is what made the most sense to us. And so finally we got another Lyme test done and through a doctor in Seattle and it was positive. And then at that time... I was working with him, and then I moved down to Bend. Bend, Oregon, is Chloe's home and happy place. She moved there three years ago after a catalyst of escalating health issues, anxiety, and an overall dissatisfaction with city life and its ties. So I had visited here before many times, and my brother lived here for a while, and Every time I came, I noticed this feeling that I got, like I was just content with everything that was happening in my life, but I didn't really listen to that right away. So I would go back home in Seattle at the time and would just get caught up in the craziness of city life. It kind of swept me up in a really negative way and took away a lot of what I felt like I had to offer. So it was a very abrupt decision. I kind of, within a couple of weeks, I just did it. I quit my job and bought a car and moved out of my apartment and broke up with my boyfriend <laughs> in two weeks. I went for it in listening to my gut for the first time ever, which is what it kind of felt like. And I started noticing all these things that were really unhealthy for me. It was very much a turning point. I still remember the moment. I had everything that I wanted with me in the back of my car. And I was driving away from the city and you get this 
crazy, beautiful view. And I remember I wanted to take a picture, but I knew at the same time that I would never forget that moment just because it was a, such a big turning point. So it just has stuck with me. Kind of that unstoppable feeling that you get when you've done something that really scares you and you've gotten through it and you made made it through and you're on the other side and now the thing ahead of you is it doesn't matter if it's scary or big or whatever it it's achievable and you can do it Mm. that's such like a beautiful moment in in certain ways it's like before reality sets in (laughs) yeah (laughs) reality set in about a hundred miles later when my car exploded (laughs) (laughs) chloe's reality including the birth of more than lime after a quick word from our sponsor or kayak The folks at Oru Kayak believe that spending time in nature is a deep human need, even for those of us who live in cities. We talked again to Whitney Neighbor, who affirmed that sentiment when we asked her about her favorite aspects of the kayak. I like, honestly, just how quick and easy it is. They are, at first, kind of difficult to set up, but once you do get the hang of it, you have a kayak in like 10 minutes. You you park, set up your kayak, and you're in the water in 10 minutes. That's really nice, especially for wanting to be out on the water for a couple hours in the evening, during the week. Get out on the water in 10 minutes, in the backcountry or in the city, in a beautiful, foldable oru kayak. Learn more at www.orukayak.com. That's www.orukayak.com. O-R-U-Kayak.com. And it was when I got to Bend, my tremors came back and I think the weight of doing all those things, quitting my job, all those things in that short amount of time had taken a toll on me. And the first month I was like, I'm just going to do everything. I'm going to climb. I'm going to hike. I'm going to like raft. I'm just going to go for it. And I didn't slow down. I was still in that same mentality of go, go, go. And that's kind of when I crashed again and went back up to Seattle to start treatment. And I got a pick line so I could come back to Bend and get treatment every day from home. Can you explain what a pick line is? It's an intravenous catheter thing. There's different kinds. There's ones that can go in your chest that are more permanent and there's ones that can go in your arm that just has a clear bandage over it. And it's a little itty bitty tube that goes through your vein. That way you're able to hook yourself up to medication if you have to take it daily. Often people with other autoimmune diseases will have it out of convenience so they can kind of keep a normal lifestyle. Was that helpful in recalibrating? It was and it wasn't. It helped in that I was able to continue to do a lot of things, but it was limiting in that it was this thing that was very visible and there was this fear based around it. And I would limit myself from doing certain things for a good reason, but at the same time, it was like I slowed down to the point of, well, I can't do that. I shouldn't do this. I just was saying no to everything because I was so afraid of 
having another relapse and having everything kind of come crashing down again, that's when more than Lyme came into play. I wanted to put my energy towards something that could start slow and could connect me with people that were going through a similar experience and that pushed me in a really positive and gentle way into the outdoors. When you said you started slowly, how did you get started with More Than Lime? What were the first steps? I was sitting at a cafe. It's one of my favorites in Bend. It's called Crow's Feet. I came up with the name More Than Lime, and then I'm like, what do I want to do with this? It all kind of rushed over me. I don't know what I was thinking about at the time, but I just got on my phone. I got the Instagram handle and then I reserved the domain name and then I kind of started building a structure around what I generally wanted it to look like and the part that I was most excited about was sharing stories because it gave me that opportunity to reach out to people which terrified me because I'm quite reserved and shy and I don't put myself out there a lot. And I wasn't really on social media before this. So it was all very new to me. Also sharing things that I wrote was like, whew, I I had no idea how I was going to do that. I just knew that I had to. So I just started by connecting with people and writing down my ideas and taking small adventures that I would document and then write a little piece on. And some of them I would share and some of them it was just for me to build my confidence in that Really, I had written off writing, and I didn't think of it as something that I could pursue. My grandpa pushed me to pick it up again. He was an English teacher in for a community college in Fort Bragg. We would send emails back and forth, and they were kind of like mini English lessons, and he would have me write things that I wanted to write, and then we would go through grammatically, because that was what was really hard and as soon as we started working on stuff together it just clicked it was a fantastic boost of confidence he was like the first real English teacher that I I looked up to in that kind of way and I look forward to our lessons and he'll still send me edits on every blog post that I write it's this really healthy good relationship around making mistakes and because I also had a hard time with making mistakes and beating myself up for it where I was making tons of mistakes and I almost loved it because then it gave me more to work on that's what helped me get to a, a place that made me feel confident in it was it hard to find people at first who had Lyme it was surprisingly easy there was already this awesome community built around hashtag Lyme disease. Like that was the first thing that I typed in. The one that came up, it was like hashtag Lyme disease and then Lyme don't kill my vibe. And that I clicked on that one because it was a little different, but I, it was still kind of what I was looking for. It was started by this young woman who I'm now friends with and have met up with several times in person And she was the first person that 
introduced me to people, like recommend that I talk to this person and this person and really set me in the direction that I wanted to go with that. And then from there, it was really easy to find those people. I was just excited that there was already this community out there that wanted to share and wanted to be there for each other. Even though it's not person to person way, it's like a, I get what you're going through kind of way. And we don't really need to say anything, but we can just understand each other. Is that part of the power of, of sharing those stories? Knowing that you're not alone in the experience of Lyme? Definitely. And it's funny because it's this, this cycle that I go through where I'm feeling really good with where I'm at, but inevitably I will go through these waves of that familiar anxiety and panic and wanting to run when I'm feeling most vulnerable and scared and kind of at my lowest, I will read a comment or a message or an email. And it's like, it's more than knowing that I'm not alone. It's this, wow, this person trusted me with their story and with sharing it usually the email will be prefaced with like, wow, this took me a really long time to put together. I'm, I'm sorry. And my first reaction is like, don't be sorry. This is incredible that you want to do this. And however you want to share it is fine with me. I just want to get your voice out there because every single voice adds to this collective net that catches those people that don't feel like they can keep pushing. And it, Every single time it's this reminder that I'm not alone and that there's so much to each story. Because like the symptoms of Lyme are hard to to pin down too. Like there's overlap, but there's, I'm sure everyone's experience is so unique with, with the pain and with the, the way that theirs is expressed. It's crazy how different everyone deals with and the symptoms that they have and how also it doesn't really matter what you're feeling or how you're going about dealing with it. It just matters that someone else is going through something similar alongside you. This community could have a place for like competition to like, I'm getting better through doing this. So you have to do this too. Or the Western medicine versus the holistic route. It's, it can be very divided, but this community has a way of bringing it all and putting it together of the umbrella of Lyme and healing pull from wherever they want to, because it doesn't, it's so individualized that it doesn't really matter how you do it. Just as long as it works for you and it's healthy. Are people who meet you ever surprised that you have Lyme? Yes. (laughs) Almost always. (laughs) I mean, there's the, but you don't look sick thing. And I don't really run into that as much as I thought I would. I think it's because the people that I, I feel like I'm surrounded with right now and their acquaintances and their friends that I've never met and then do meet are all really understanding 
And it's so motivating to see that. And I definitely do. There are people here and there that say, well, how can you go for this hike if you have Lyme and you really must not be that sick? But I think it's because I've come to this place of I know my body so well and I know how this disease has manifested itself in my mind and my body. And I just I'm confident in how I'm going about this and what what has helped me most. I don't question that more than anything, this disease has taught me to be in tune with myself and listen to my needs. I was thinking about the different kinds of strength. I have to say no to a lot of activities. Like recently, my boyfriend and our group of friends go mountain biking a lot. And there's, there's lots of things to do in Bend all the time, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But I can't always do them. And I have to learn when saying no is going to show more strength than saying yes to those things. And I've struggled with kind of building that confidence back up of my body wanting to be active and wanting to go out and do these backpacking trips and climbing adventures and all these different things or like a day of biking. For instance, yesterday... I said no, and instead I went to the river, and I went for a little walk, and I did yoga, and I went swimming, and that was exactly what my body needed, and I felt strong, and I felt confident, whereas if I went biking, I think I would have been really hard on myself. Doing little things like that, it really builds my confidence, and it also redefines strength and how I view it, and it's not like how many workouts did I do this week? It's, did I do things this week that made me feel alive and push me even in little ways? And usually the answer is yes. And that I want to take that away and to be like, wow, that that's what makes me feel strong. And the amazing thing about that is that that is so relevant for someone who doesn't have Lyme too there can be a, a feeling of just like, you know, this never enough feeling and for you to be okay with what you chose to do and confident in what you chose to do. Like that's huge. Yeah. It is a never enough feeling and it is so intertwined in everything we all do. Everyone can relate to that and it's figuring out how to, have a healthy relationship with where you are right now versus where you were and what you could be and all these different ideas and notions. Do you have any advice for any listeners or, or women out there who may have recently found out that they had Lyme and it's too late to treat in the, you know, in the early stages? It's terrifying you have no idea where to start. It's just like this massive playing field. And you're like, it just doesn't even make sense. And there's no person there to tell you, this is the direction you need to go. And this is what's going to get you better. You have to be your own best advocate. And you have to start where you are right now. Don't compare yourself to the person that you think you should be or that you felt you were five years ago or whenever you were feeling good to not set those 
bars and timelines and standards of, well, I should be feeling this way and I should be doing this. And to just really listen to your gut and give yourself the time and space you need to figure it out. And just to even wrap your head around what is going on. And then while you're doing that, to know that there is a whole community of people out there that are ready to support you if you don't have that kind of support in your like person-to-person life. And that it is possible to, to feel alive while you're fighting this thing. You don't need to wait for your life to start after you've gotten better. You can, you know, you can start it right now. Chloe's advice is true for so many life trials. Even something as simple as being your own advocate is tough to remember when you're in the thick of whatever that challenge may be. We can learn more about Chloe and read about her adventures and the compelling stories of others living with Lyme at www.morethanlyme.org. Chloe doesn't work alone anymore. She's brought on a co-creator, Ali Schwedo, and a creative director, Melissa Cox. They're currently planning more than Lyme meetups across the West, and Chloe has big dreams of turning her community into a nonprofit that can give back monetarily to the Lyme community. Make sure you check out morethanlyme.org and subscribe to the newsletter to stay on top of their growth. Don't go just yet. As promised, here's a preview of our new podcast project, Women on the Road. For those of you who don't know, I traveled in a van for a year while starting She Explores, the website, and interviewed a lot of women along the way for a series I called Women on the Road. Laura Hughes approached me about starting a podcast to extend that spirit, and her enthusiasm was contagious. I'm Laura Hughes, and you're listening to the She Explores podcast series, Women on the Road, a podcast that will hopefully bring you closer to some of the honest experiences that life on the road has to offer from the perspective of women who've lived it firsthand. Now, while I'm hosting this podcast, I'm also a woman on the road, and I just started out, so you'll have the opportunity to ride along on this journey with me. I've always been drawn to long-term travel, but didn't have a specific plan as to how I would achieve it until a few years ago when my boyfriend Shane and I bought an empty white Ford Transit cargo van and began transforming it into our mobile adventure home. Some people name their vans, and some don't. We named ours Vanna White because, in our opinion, puns are pretty great. Before hitting the road, we were two full-time Seattle-based professionals, strongly committed to our careers and living rather fast-paced lives. So our big motivation for traveling was to live simply and dedicate our time to experiencing the United States outdoors. Since we had no experience with the massive undertaking of building out our own camper, we decided to take our time and spent over two years planning, saving, and executing on the van conversion. I'll be the first to say that creating a home inside our van came with its own unique ups and downs, but we're really glad we did it this way. Now with the van finally ready, we set our sights on our travels just a week ago. Although we've had years to consider every possible logistic involved in a trip like this, 
there are still so many unknowns about what life on the road will actually feel and be like. And if I'm being honest, it left me a little anxious as we prepared to depart our home in the Pacific Northwest. Fortunately, the community surrounding the van life movement is full of women travelers who could likely relate to what I've been experiencing as the rubber literally meets the road. So I asked a couple friends who have been amazing sounding boards when it comes to road travel to seek some words of wisdom. We also asked you listeners through She Explores about things you'd like to have known before you hit the road, and the answers we received were overwhelming. The first person I spoke with is Laura Patton of Mobile Roamers, who's no stranger to van living. She's been on and off the road for several years, and for the past few years, she's been living on the road full-time, first in a sprinter van named Silas that she converted herself, and then in a Dodge Promaster named Pedro that she lives in with her fiancé Brian and their two dogs. At the time of this call, I was still in Seattle, sitting in the middle of my near-empty living room, with one week left until our departure. Amid the chaos of moving out, it was really grounding to talk to a friend. So what I'm really looking for at this stage, and I'm sure you can relate um, as someone who's made that leap to live on the road and out of a vehicle, I'm curious to know, what do you wish you'd known before you left for the road? I guess just to go for it and to be willing to try new things. I was really focused on climbing when I first hit the road, and my main direction was where's the next climbing area? what's in season right now but in the last couple years I've really opened up the activities that I'm willing to try and that's really opened up a whole new world for me going to new places that I never would have went to if I was only climbing and trying a lot of new activities I've gotten into backcountry skiing pretty heavily over the last couple years which has been great Um, so just kind of being open to new things and not to let things get to you like there's always going to be little stresses band breaking down things here and there that don't go quite as you expected them to but you just kind of have to keep rolling and go with the flow I personally have a really hard time letting go of things so that's definitely something that I'm curious to learn more about how to manage and something I actually want to highlight a lot on the series is just that there are still the realities of van life and living on the road in general where it's not a perfect system. In fact, it's really quirky and there are a lot of interesting things that can go wrong and you really get to choose how you show up in those moments. I'm wondering from your side of things, can you think of a time where things went wrong or you had kind of a crazy moment like that and you chose to kind of let it roll off your back like you were talking about? Yeah, we were driving from Oregon out to Idaho and we're going up a hill and all of a sudden we just hear a loud noise and Silas kind of stopped accelerating. We realized that we weren't able to go uphill at more than 25 miles per hour. So something was definitely wrong with the van. Women on the Road debuts Friday, July 14th. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you stream stories. And if you like what you hear, it'd be great if you left a review. It'll help other people find it. Thanks to Chloe O'Neill for chatting with me. Thanks to Org Kai for their support. Make sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen if you enjoyed this episode. 
even better, tell a friend. Learn more about this episode and others via she-explores.com slash podcast. Music is by Lee Rosevere and Josh Woodward. Until next time.